love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kaylee, Orpha, you can keep standing. I love what Kaylee just prayed over us and the truth and the reality that God is a restorer. He's always restoring things. He's always redeeming things. He's always doing something new. And I love the invitation and the reality that he calls us a new creation. He sees us for who we are becoming. And he stays committed to us every single step of the way. And I hope today on February 14th, if you're watching online, if you're here in the room, no matter where you are in your life right now, I just hope that you feel the reality that God is restoring you that God has a plan and a purpose to prosper you, to bless you, to keep you, to protect you, to empower you to new heights and to new dreams and to new purposes in your life, right, right where you are. The wait's over. God's already decided to restore you. The question is, are you gonna receive it? The question is, are you gonna decide to go with him where he is leading you? Now, I hope hope that tonight is just kind of a glimmer of light in all of our lives. Because today, Valentine's Day, a day in you know, our world where we, we celebrate love and so many things, but I hope that today, above all else, we get to just celebrate the love that God has for us. Like, what if that was the thing that we did today? You know, like, we just celebrated the reality that God came near. He didn't, you know, stay far. Emmanuel, God with us. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about how we relate to each other and we're gonna talk about drama a little bit, which I'm a professional at drama. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, but before we sit down, let's read together out of Ephesians chapter four. Why don't you grab your Bible if you have it with you, if you have your phone, grab your Bible app. Ephesians chapter four, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. He says this in verse one of chapter four, as a prisoner for the Lord, he's writing this from a jail cell then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. To live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. We've all been given a calling. We're asked to live worthy of that calling. He says, be completely humble. How humble? Completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the, the unity of the spirit through the bond, through the promise of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and one father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Not as we apportioned it, not as we saw fit, but as Christ did. Turn to the person beside you and ask them the question, am I the drama? If they didn't say yes in return, they're lying to you. You can have a seat. That's the title of the message tonight. We're jumping right in, right there. Am I the drama? The reality is that I think we're all the drama to some extent. And if I'm being really honest, I love drama 
Uh, it's why I've been so excited about this message <laughs> uh, for so long. Uh, and I, well, one thing before I jump into the message, I was told before I got up here, uh, someone who drives an orange Jeep who parked out front of the building, your lights are on. You can wait a minute before you get up. If you feel awkward, we won't judge you though. Uh, but you may want to turn those lights off before uh, too long. But uh, if not, we'll help you jump your car after. But uh, the, the idea of the, the title of the message tonight, Am I the Drama? Uh, came to me uh, last, I don't know, I think it was October. We were sitting out here one night with our interns. We were sitting in our circle. We were talking about different things. And I said, we should do a series on relational drama. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, okay, what if we just did at least one message on drama? And what if we did it on Valentine's Day, on Palentine's Day at Overflow? How fun <laughs> would that be? And I don't think they thought it was going to be as fun as I did. But I literally have been like giddy excited about this message uh, since then. Because I think that you and I, if we're just being honest, we all deal with drama in our friend groups. We all deal with drama in our family. It's one of the reasons Christmas and Thanksgiving is so difficult because where there's a family, there is drama. Where there are people, there is tension. Uh, where there are friends, there is often disagreement and kind of this idea of like, do I agree with you on that? Or how do I feel about the way that you're doing that? Or what did she say? Or what did he say? Or what did they mean by that? And there's all these different questions that we're constantly asking ourselves about how we relate to the people around us. And I think, and I believe that Paul speaking in that first section of Ephesians chapter four, the message tonight, he's directly giving us this invitation to pull together and to promote the unity of the body of Christ, held in the bond, the promise of peace, and really consider the reality that Jesus has given grace. Jesus has apportioned grace to each of us for the places that we fall short, for e to each of us for the things that we don't do well. But I think that if we're just being, like I said, if we're just being honest, when I, when I have conversations with people and I ask them how, how their life's doing and how is college and kind of where are they at in life, Nine times out of 10, somewhere in the conversation, I've got drama with some of my friends. And I just want to press into that a little bit tonight. Uh, so I hope that you'll trust me for the next 30 so, or so minutes. I hope that we can learn together. I hope that you can know that I'm not saying uh, that I am perfect at anything that I'm about to say, uh, but I do hope that you hear it in love. And I do wanna be really clear, uh, the, the drama that I'm talking about is not just being loud and is not just trying to be funny or eccentric all the time. The drama I'm talking about is tension. It's frustration. It's gossip. So I love seeing how quiet the room can get. Like, I, I, that's what I'm talking about. And uh, the Webster uh, Dictionary would define racial, uh, relational drama like this. A state situation or series of events involving intense conflict. I love that, intense conflict. The way that I would kind of, my assessment of relational drama is that it's a, it's a result of a lack of relational maturity that stems from an immature faith. That when we have relational drama in our relationships, it's because we have not 
grown in a sense of maturity and understanding of the people that we are in relationship with, which actually kind of backs all the way up to the fact that we've got a little bit of an immature faith. And I think that when we're in between 18 and 25, honestly, when we're just alive as a human being, of course, we're gonna have an immature faith. But I think especially in college, we're trying to work out everything. We're trying to ask all these really, really big questions. We're trying to figure out our theology. Maybe you've come tonight and you're like, I'm just here because I didn't have any other Valentine's Day plans. And man, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, I'm glad that this was the place that you came to tonight. Uh, But I'm just, I I hope that we can like take really, really seriously what is the, the level of maturity in our relationships, indicated by how we talk about each other, how we navigate tension, how we navigate disagreement, how we like push through the hard things to get to the, the really, really good things. And here's the, the, the reality of, of where we are, is if we don't take this seriously, if we don't do this well, one, we misrepresent God's kingdom, and two, we live in an unnecessary level of tension that is not becoming of God's kingdom. Division and depersonalization and this fundamental like lack of trust are not descriptors of God's kingdom. They just simply are not. So as we continue to pull out this idea, here's one thing that I want to encourage you with, is relying on God to ordain your relational steps will lead you to give grace, hold truth with humility, and fight for unity. It will lead you to give grace, hold truth with humility, and fight for unity. We have a slide for that. They can put it on the screen so you can write it down because I think it's really, really critically important that we know this, that we understand this, that we see this, that when we follow God, our life changes. When we let go of our way and our agenda and we pick up his way and we pick up his agenda, We are going to be called to give grace, to hold truth. Yes, of course we hold it firmly, but we hold it with humility and we fight for unity. I think about this a lot in the Christian circle because I think that Christians are sometimes a bit of a magnet to drama because we we have very specific opinions, we have very specific realities, and we have very specific ideology and theology, which makes us feel like oftentimes that we are always in opposition with someone. And the thing that I would encourage you with is Jesus never saw it that way. Jesus saw people for people. And yes, he had truth that he gave them and he had grace that he gave them and he, he walked with them and he talked with them and he, he invited them into a better way of reality and a better way to live. But he saw them as people. He looked them in the eyes. He called some of them daughter. He called some of them son. Called them by name. And I just wonder, like, is that our reality? Is that our culture? Jesus follower in the room, is that how you treat people who aren't Jesus followers or who don't have the same convictions as you? I just encourage you to consider that. And I think when you think about the Bible, there's so much drama in the Bible, and I think people often miss that. Uh, If you've ever been bored reading the Bible before, one, you're not alone. Uh, Two, a really great place to pick up on a really dramatic story uh, is the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, And Samuel 18 to like 24, which is what we're about to read from, is the story of a guy named Saul and a guy named David's drama. Saul was king of Israel. David was about to become king of Israel. uh, And Saul kind of begins to see that in the story that we're going to talk through tonight. 
Uh, but Saul gets really, really jealous of David because David becomes very, very effective because he's staying very consistent with his relationship with God. And he begins to uh, develop in his ability and develop in his influence. And Saul doesn't like that. So he begins to devise a plan to have him killed through several different things, tries to get him to marry his daughter. It doesn't end up working out because he's just trying to move David to the front to where he would eventually be killed by someone else. So he wouldn't have to pray the price that God would ask him to pay if he was the one that killed David. So it's this whole kind of dramatic situation. And the story that we're going to kind of zoom in on for just a second uh, is the story of how David uh, saves Saul's life or preserves Saul's life, even though Saul is trying to kill David. So if you have your Bible, let's jump to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, we'll, I'm going to summarize part of the story. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, I've been doing that all weekend. Oh. Uh, I'm going to summarize part of the story and then we're going to jump into the text here in just a second. Uh, so uh, the beginning of chapter 24 uh, gives us all these details uh, that Saul uh, finishes a, a fight with the Philistines and he comes back, he kind of regroups, he grabs 3,000 strong young men uh, and he goes in this big pursuit of trying to fall uh, or to, trying to find David. And as he's kind of moving out to find David, uh, David is hiding from Saul and he's actually uh, back in this cave. And the ironic part of the story uh, is Saul finds this cave, doesn't know that David is hiding in the cave, but he goes into the cave to go to the bathroom. This is literally in the Bible. I promise you, like I'm not making anything up. Uh, Saul comes into the cave, goes to the bathroom, and David sees that Saul comes into the cave. But, but Saul doesn't know that David is there. And all of David's followers are like, dude, this is the time. You can get him, you can kill him while he's going to the bathroom. And then all of a sudden, he won't be able to hurt you anymore because you took him out. And then you'll be able to come out of the cave and you'll be able to kind of reign victorious because you took over Saul while he went in to go to the battle. Like, this is a pretty, like, think about it. Like, this is a pretty big opportunity. And David goes up to Saul, cuts a corner off of his robe without him knowing, I wish in the most non-weird way possible, I wish that I could have seen like the, the, this story transpire. Uh, and he comes back with a piece of his robe and he, he denies his desire to kill Saul or the recommendation of his followers to kill Saul. Saul doesn't still know that he's there. Saul leaves the cave. And when Saul leaves, David comes out. And that's where we're going to pick it up uh, in verse 8 of 1 Samuel uh, 24. It says this, uh, when Saul looked behind him, when David walked out, uh, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May who? May the Lord judge between you, me and you. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand, it will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. 
I love this because David took the high road. David knew in his conscience what was right. He knew in his heart what was right, what God was asking of him, and he did it. Even though in that moment, it could have eventually one day costed David his life. Because maybe if he didn't get to Saul fast enough, he had no way of knowing whether or not he would continue to live to see the day that he would become king and to fulfill all the things that God wanted him to do. And I love that it goes on in verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You ever have a friend like that? Where they consistently return good for evil? When you mistreat them, they treat you good? You have just now told me about the good that you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way that you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went back up into the stronghold. Notice what happens. Saul goes from a pursuit of killing David through this act of radical kindness and radical trust on David's part and God's plan and only God's plan. Saul goes to revering David, seeing David's character, seeing how different David was to the point that he acknowledges, yeah, David, you're gonna be king. You're a better man than I am. You made a decision that I probably wouldn't have made. You returned evil or you returned good for evil. And so much so that I'm gonna now ask for your protection one day when you ascend to the highest rank in all the land. And actually you go back down the story uh, a little bit later in 1 Samuel, you'll find that David actually saves Saul's life or preserves Saul's life again. And here I think is the reality is that David through all of the things that God was calling him to do and all the things that David was doing in his life, he got a target on his back. And there was drama kind of following him everywhere that he went. There was tension following him everywhere that he went. But he decided in this moment of all moments, I'm not gonna be a part of it. I'm going to function differently because I'm operating on a completely different value system than the world is. I think about this for you and me. Because a lot of times in my conversations with some of you, drama, you didn't choose it. It's just a part of your friend group. It's just a part of our culture. Log into Instagram, watch TikTok, watch YouTube, watch the news. Everyone's talking about each other, but no one's building each other up. No one's saying, I'm gonna gonna care about unity. I'm gonna care about honesty. I'm gonna care about transparency. I'm gonna care about God's agenda more than my agenda because we're always looking to be satisfied or feel superior to someone else. And I just can't help but think that drama is inevitable, but instigating it or your instigation of it does not have to be. Drama is going to come to the door of your life one day. Tension and frustration and disagreement. 
mischaracterization, misquoting of something that you said is going to happen in your life at some point, but you do not have to instigate it. You do not have to stir the pot. You do not have to be a part of it. David proves that. His enemy is brought to his doorstep, literally, and it is in one of the most vulnerable positions that a human being can be in. And he says, no, I'm not acting like the world would act. I'm not making things worse because I'm trusting in the plan that God has for me. I'm trusting in God's ability to provide for me. And here's the reality for all of you Jesus followers in the room. This is my reality. This is your reality. It's this, it's behind every disagreement or area of tension. There is a person that you are called to honor and to love. Fundamentally, every time that you disagree with somebody, every time that you've got tension with somebody, You are called to honor them and you are called to love them. You are not called to agree with them, but you are called to honor them. When they say that thing about you that you know is not true, your calling remains the same. You've got to honor. You've got to love. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but you've got to decide that you're going to forgive, that you're going to give grace, that you're going to seek understanding. And I think that that, is an incredibly difficult place for you and for me. Because there's, to an extent, I think, when it comes to to, to tension or to drama in our relationships, we sometimes thrive on it, if we're being honest. Because it, it kind of propels this narrative. It's like, oh, at least that's not me. Especially when it's about someone else. But what does it look like for you to be an advocate? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we disagreed with God, he saw it fit to die for you and me. Who are you advocating for? Who are you standing in the gap for? Who needs a little bit of honor in their life right now to keep going? And here's one thing I truly believe for our culture and our world is we need healthy, restorative, um, helpful, formative communities. We need formative community so badly. We need a new definition of friendship. We need a new definition of intimacy in the way that we relate and talk and do life with each other. And here are three things that I would believe about a formative community that have got to become true for you and for me, for our entire generation, for the church, and I even believe the world. A formative community is a place where everyone is fully known, grace and truth are valued, And all parts, all, not some, all parts of life are navigated together, including disagreements. And I would say when it comes to disagreements, we need proactive, we need proactivity and we need empathy and we need honesty. Because when we disagree with each other, we put it on the back burner, we kind of withhold some empathy a lot of times and we certainly often refuse honesty because we don't wanna rock the boat. We don't wanna get on somebody's nerves. We don't wanna say the wrong thing. We don't want to offend them. But the reality of Jesus is he was full of grace and truth. He was constantly giving grace to people, but he was constantly reminding them and pointing them to the truth and the reality of who God is and the implications of that. And for you and me to have a formative community, we've gotta be fully known, which is gonna require your honesty and your vulnerability. We've gotta be really, really diligent about valuing grace and truth. But we've got We've got to be people who navigate disagreements and tension together, not in silos, not apart, 
We can't go to our, our own room to figure it out. We've got to work on it together. But here's the thing. I think it all comes back to satisfaction or superiority. Satisfaction. We often depend on the intention of others. Like when we think about how good of a job that we're doing in life, we think about what people say about us. We think about what people think about us. We are so hungry for the attention and the affirmation and the adoration of other people, which feeds this narrative of tension and disagreement and drama in our life because when someone doesn't agree with us or affirm us, that changes something inside of us because our identity was linked to what they think. But the truth is that Jesus in John chapter four in a conversation with the woman at the well, he's talking about come to me to find eternal life, to come to me to drink the water that will never make you thirsty again. What he was saying is that I am the only place, Jesus speaking, that your identity will be secure and will be on the firm foundation. It will be built on a solid ground. If you're building your narrative of what you believe to be true about yourself based upon what other people think about you, you will always be a magnet to tension, disagreement, and drama because you're trying to project into somebody else the way that you want them to see you. We avoid difficulty for the sake of unity. We don't wanna engage in hard conversations because we feel like it makes it kind of feel ununified. And the, the, the reality is, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he makes it super clear that we've got to be gentle, but we also have to be clear about what truth is. He would call it gentle correction. He's like, no, 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 you gotta pay attention. You gotta be gentle, but you have to be focused. You can't just leave truth. You've gotta be diligent. But you and I, like, we, we, would, we would just rather, we'd just rather not say anything. We'd rather not actually talk to the person. Another thing, we lack patience and understanding. We all wanna be understood but we lack the ability to understand. You ever notice this? We want everybody else to see the world the way, the way that we see it, but we don't wanna take the time to see the world the way that they see it. And the reality is Galatians chapter five is really clear. Paul makes it super clear. Patience and long suffering, those are fruit of the spirit. When the spirit is alive in your life and working in your heart, then patience is going to be a byproduct of the Spirit's residency in your life. We focus, on more, we focus more on what we get than what we give. I think about this when we have a friend, we are often thinking about, what can they do for me? What will knowing them do for me? Well, if I meet with that person, then that will help me do this. And I think that networking in the business world is a good thing and it has a, an incredible purpose but it can also be very, very quickly twisted to where all of a sudden now you're only building relationships for the sake of what you can get out of them. I love Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the people who give away mercy like they're made of it because they're not carrying around all this bondage and expectation of other people. They're giving away mercy. The things that they will receive will be really, really beautiful that you can't receive when you're entitled to everyone else's thing that they can give to you. I think about this in the context of superiority. We're always thinking about how we're different than other people. We demand agreement for unity. We can't have unity until we agree on everything. First Corinthians chapter two, 
Paul makes it super clear. For I have resolved to just know Christ and Christ crucified. Jesus is the anchor of our faith. Jesus is the center point. Jesus is the son that our entire faith system revolves around. And he's writing into the church in Corinth. All y'all got going on, y'all just need to put your eyes on Jesus and allow him to inform every other thing about you. But in our culture, it's like, if we don't, if we don't agree, we can't be in the same room together. We definitely can't do life together. But the early church was messy. And it's clear in Acts chapter eight that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the example of Jesus. They had a center point for unity. Yes, they saw things differently. It's a very diverse group of people in the way that they thought and they saw faith and the way that they saw the world. But Paul's instruction is so clear. You, you don't have to await for agreement on everything to have unity because you have Jesus. We prefer to talk about people instead of talking to them. Romans chapter one, Paul calls out gossip and a long list of things as being vehemently opposed to the way of Jesus. Because isn't there something that feels good when you talk about somebody? He's like, at least I'm not that way. At least, at least I don't have that struggle. At least that's not me. Gossip will erode your character quicker than nearly anything else. We as a culture have got to pay attention to how much we are talking about people instead of talking to them. Another thing we do is we define what is true in echo chambers. If we have a thought or we have a belief or we have an ideology, we go to people who agree with us to find affirmation for that belief. And then we withhold ourselves from people that we know will have a different opinion because we enjoy our belief. We enjoy the thing that we think. And I love in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul talks about, he's like, the, you've got the Bible. You've got the, the written revelation of God that describes truth and describes reality. You've got a, a, a guide for your life. And the reality for all of us that would describe ourselves as Jesus followers or as Christians We've got to do a really, really good job at paying really attention when we have a belief or we have an ideology to not running away and protecting it, but to bringing it into the light, to bringing it into our formative community and allowing ourselves to receive help in what we believe and looking at scripture and looking at the life of Jesus and looking at all of the different people that have come along the way that have been heroes of the faith in the way that Hebrews chapter 11 would describe it. I love that when we think about Drama, I think that one thing that we don't like to think about is forgiveness. But we refuse forgiveness because we want to feel right. Because we think if we forgive somebody for something, that that means that we are agreeing with the thing that they did. And forgiveness is simply letting go of bitterness. It's simply letting go of division between you and another person. And I can assure you, for those of us, and I would put myself in this column, I'm with you in this, for those of us that are holding bitterness against someone else, it is costing you way more than it's costing them. It is eroding your hope. It is challenging your joy. It is causing separation between you and God. Matthew chapter five, Sermon on the Mount. Once again, Jesus is super clear that forgiveness is not optional. It is a command. If you are a Jesus follower, you are called to forgive. 
And the message translation of the Bible would actually translate that verse as if you refuse forgiveness, then you actually kind of pull yourself outside of God's way or God's intention or God's plan because God gives grace. God forgives, so should we. All of these things light little fires underneath the drama that you and I experience every day in our friend groups, in our classes, in our families. And we can't afford for that to be our reality because it will challenge our calling. It will challenge our purpose more than anything. As long as you use relational drama to manufacture satisfaction and hold on to superiority, you will miss God's calling on your life. 100% guaranteed. If trying to find satisfaction in the drama and the tension and the disagreement, if holding your rightness and the things that you do well against other people, if those are the ways that you have elected to live your life, I guarantee you, you will miss God's calling on your life. Read Ephesians 4. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. You can't afford to do it. I feel like I have a conversation a week with somebody who's saying, I'm trying to discern what God's purpose and calling is on my life. And a lot of times my first question back to them is what are you struggling with most right now? Because a lot of times we see the rest of our life through the lens of our current struggle or our current circumstance or our current perspective. We talk about this all the time. But the reality is, until you zoom out and see the world as Jesus sees it, you will miss your calling because your calling comes from Jesus. And later on in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the gifts that Jesus gave to the church to raise up and to build the church. It's incredibly fascinating. I would highly encourage you to go read it. But right now we're gonna jump to 1 Thessalonians, uh, to, to Paul's letter to encourage the church in Thessalonica, where he says something that I don't think many of us like. I certainly don't like it because I am super loud and I love drama, <laughs> the, the loud and the funny kind. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 is where we're going. I, I love the way that this begins uh, because he's writing in this way of, I've heard so many things about you and I'm encouraged by what I hear. But here are a couple things before I wrap this letter up that I need you to know and I need you to stay really faithful in. He says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet, I love the word yet anytime in the Bible because it's like, okay, we've gotten our encouragement. Here comes our instruction. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do some more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. In other words, mind your own business and be really, really focused, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Think about this in our context. How often do we spend more time thinking about what other people are doing than what we're doing with our own hands, than what we're doing with our own life? And how much does that feed the rate of dissension and tension 
depersonalization and division in our world today. I think that Paul is being very clear because he knows what has the potential to make it exceptionally hard for true and healthy and restorative and formative communities to exist. Because when our eyes are on everybody else's paper, when we're stirring up things for our own satisfaction, making us feel better about ourselves, we're missing the point. We're missing the opportunity to be grace carriers, hope proclaimers, love givers of Jesus, that hold truth humbly, that value the things that Jesus valued and are taught to us all throughout the story of the Bible. Four things for what it looks like to live a quiet life that I think Paul and Timothy are talking about. First is focus on giving more than getting. In your relationship, do not ask what they can do for you. Ask what you can do for them. Sounds like a John F. Kennedy quote. But I'm serious. Reorient your perspective. What can you give to people as opposed to what can you get from them? This is entirely countercultural. Our world does not function like this. But the truth and the reality is it's better to give than it is to receive. We know this. Jesus lived on the earth for 33 years, single, by the way, and lived a completely full life. And he gave it all away. He was in ministry for three. I've worked here at the church for 10 years. I've been in ministry seven more years than Jesus was on earth. And Jesus did far, 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 far more than I could ever imagine doing with an entire lifetime of ministry. Why? He was fully man and he was fully God and he knew how to give himself away. While he was fully God, he didn't consider being equal with God something to gloat or something to run around with. He chose the posture of a servant. Second thing is keep your eyes on your own paper. Comparison is a punk and it will steal every bit, every bit of life that you have in your life. And some of you, this means that you just need to take a break from social media because every time that you log into Instagram, you are thinking far more about what you don't have than what you do have. And we are so good at making our thing the biggest thing, making our problem the most challenging problem, which is why we desperately need a worldwide kingdom perspective. I am excited about this. I got an email from our friends at Love Justice a couple of days ago. Uh, and just from the night that they were here, Overflow has pledged $6,000 from you uh, to benefit the work of Love Justice around the world. I think it's something to celebrate. Yes, 100%. We can celebrate that. But that requires us to not see our problem as the biggest problem. It requires us to choose generosity. It requires us to give more than we're getting. It requires us to be faithful with the money that we have. It requires us to be faithful with the life that we have been entrusted to live and to lead. The third thing is this, establish healthy and pure relational boundaries. I put the word pure in here <laughs> very intentionally because I think a lot of us could hear 
Well, Carson said to establish boundaries. You're no longer in it because he told me to establish boundaries and you no longer fit. What's your motive? Is it self-preservation or is it generosity? But you need boundaries, all good relationships. And we're starting a dating series next week, so bring your boyfriends and girlfriends. Like, we're, we're gonna talk about dating. We're gonna talk about singleness. We're gonna talk about, talking about being broken up. We're gonna talk about marriage. We're gonna talk about, oh, this gonna be super fun. I can't even wait. I haven't written it yet. But, like, the reality is, the way that we see each other, it matters. The boundaries that we hold up in our relationships, they, they matter. I love the, the, this picture, this analogy that I heard one time, that life-giving relationships look far more like a river than it does a swamp. Why does a river have life around it? Because it has borders. It has clear boundaries where water flows in an intentional direction. A swamp, there are no borders. It's just this big, long kind of body of water where things sit and they're not tended to. And then all kinds of crazy animals and mud and all these different things happen in the swamp. And then that's where you go duck hunting, but that's the only good thing that you do in a swamp. Somebody said, amen. It's been a minute since I've duck hunted. But the last time I went, my friend pulled me in the water in my waders and I was like, I'm done with this. I'm not going anymore. But the reality is you need boundaries in order to have healthy relationships. The fourth thing is this, is stop talking about people and start talking to them. Stop it. It's so much easier. Oh, it's so much easier to just be radically honest about our opinion about other people in private or over text or on social media. It's so much more challenging to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I gotta be honest with you. But that's what you're called to. I wanna be intentional with the way that I say this. So I'm gonna read this and I don't ordinarily do this, but I wanna be sensitive and I wanna be kind, but I also wanna be really clear because I am a pastor in your life and I feel a responsibility to say this. Processing tension in a healthy way with your people that you're experiencing drama, disagreement, and tension with. It requires full clarity, which is both sides, accurate details, and for you to process it with someone with more wisdom than you. If one of these things is missing, it is gossip and it is sin and it needs to stop. The way of Jesus is clear. Paul's instruction in Romans chapter, Romans chapter one is very, very clear. That talking about each other, it doesn't fit in God's kingdom. Now talking to each other, that's how God's kingdom grows. That's how God's kingdom gets stronger, sick noise. Here's the reality, it's Palentine's Day. So I've gotta say this, the love that you have for your pals, it matters to Jesus. The love that you have for your friends, for the people that you love, for those life-giving relationships, for those people that you don't feel like you could do life without, your love for them, it matters to Jesus. The problem is, Lots of noises. The statement doesn't end there. The love that you have for your pals and your enemies matters to Jesus. Every time. 
people who are super dramatic, that you don't understand, that you don't agree with, yeah, your love for them matters to Jesus. People you love, the people that you click with, the people that make sense to you, the people that you go to Chick-fil-A with, they matter. The way that you love them matters. Matthew chapter five, just in case you're curious. Matthew chapter five, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard it said, or that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. This topic, I think it breaks God's heart. I really do. Because we have a church and we have a kingdom who's far more known for what we are against than what we're for. I think we're known for a lot of things and I think gossip is one of them. I think drama is one of them. It breaks my heart. It's pushed people out of the church. It's pushed people away from God. It's pushed people away from Jesus. And Jesus is saying as clear as day in the Sermon on the Mount, that the way that we love the people that we disagree with matters. The way that we love the people that we can't stand, it matters. And here's what's the potential, is refusing to take the bait that relational drama presents. It will cost you satisfaction and it will cost you superiority in your relationship sometimes. But it will lead you to give the grace, peace, and healing of Jesus. Three things our world desperately needs. Every day, every moment, every second, on every campus, and on every social media platform. The truth and the reality of Jesus is desperately needed. If not you, then who? If not your life, then whose? This is our calling. This is our purpose. To build God's, God's kingdom in the way of Jesus. Let's go back to what we read to start the message tonight, Ephesians 4. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your calling. Thank you for your clarity. Thank you for your truth. God, we come together as a family, as a church, as a member of your worldwide kingdom today, and we bring all of this to your feet and we trust you with it. God, I pray that we would give grace we would hold truth, but we would hold it with a humble heart. That we would give ourselves away in the way that we serve other people. 
that we wouldn't take the bait that drama gives, that we wouldn't look to other situations for our own satisfaction or benefit from this false and superiority. We would trust what you have for us, that we would trust you as the living eternal water that is the only worthy foundation for our life to be built on. God, I pray for forgiveness to be given in this room. I pray for clarity and honesty to be valued. And ultimately, I pray for relational healing in our ministry and on our campuses. And I pray when we have questions about what we should do, that we would only look to King Jesus. God, we love you. We say this in your name. Amen.